Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Renee Vangustine, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll look at China's currency, the yuan or renminbi, which has been on the comeback trail lately. We'll also look at China's approval of a major U.S. tech M&A deal and what it might say about improving bilateral ties after the recent meeting between Presidents Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. We'll start with the yuan, which has been strengthening quite a bit lately against the dollar after touching multi-year lows earlier this year. The currency recorded milestones of sorts last week when it actually strengthened above a daily reference rate set by the central bank for the first time since July. So I know what I said sounds a bit technical, but the bottom line is that the yuan is showing some remarkable resilience lately, and it now trades at about 7.1 to the dollar. And yet nothing has really changed about China's economy, which is still in the doldrums. Uh, so Brene, any thoughts on what's driving this latest rally and you know whether it's sustainable? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it, it's it's hard to say. I think there may be several factors at play here. Um, first of all, um, there's a growing expectation uh, that uh, interest rates in the U.S. have peaked. Um, there seems to be a growing number of people who believe that the Fed will start cutting rates um, early in um, 2024. Um, and obviously, uh, higher interest rates uh, for the dollar compared to the renminbi have uh, been part of the support for the dollar versus the renminbi, and therefore part of um, some of the weakness, at least in in the exchange rate between the renminbi and the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing that um, you know has had an impact over uh, in the past um, has been the flow of funds outside of China by both uh, what you could call direct investors um, as well as uh, capital market investors. And these have been in the billions and the 10 billions of dollars and been pretty well uh, documented. So mm -hmm. um, we don't know what um, has happened on, on these fronts uh, in the very you know, recent past. I have not seen any uh, recent statistics or whatever. So that could be another uh, factor that has released some of the pressure on, on the renminbi okay. and the uh, UN. So um, hard to tell uh, where it's going to go. The, the third element is that I think that there was, there has been to some extent a sense that the renminbi was oversold. Um, and I think those are the primary reasons why we're seeing um, a better performance now. Mm -hmm. And as always, when the currency starts uh, acting better, then the central bank starts feeling in a stronger position to, you know, provide additional support to the currency. Okay. All right. Yeah, because the China's economy is still looking pretty bleak. And the other topic I, I wanted to touch on was, you know, just U.S.-China relations. And, uh, you know, everyone seems to think they're on a more positive track after a few years of, of pretty tense times. Um, the latest Positive signal was, of course, two weeks ago uh, in the meeting between President Xi and Biden in San Francisco. 
I mean, do you think this is having any impact on things or or is it really the factors you just mentioned, you know, the I guess foreign inflows could be related to improving China US ties. But what's how how much is this having an impact, do you think, the the warming US China ties? Well, you know, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, as you mentioned yourself, that meeting was about two weeks ago. Um a lot of um, a lot of uh, what we saw was kind of like, you know, I would call it spectacle made for TV. <laughs> um, the uh, you know everybody acted nice, everybody said nice things until President Biden confirmed that he still thinks that the Chinese president is a dictator. Right. Um, <laughs> so you know all of these all of these uh, big meetings and so on typically. Especially at the level of, you know, state leaders are usually very carefully orchestrated and so on. Um, there were some positives. I think pretty much everybody highlighted two. One, which was um, a renewed uh, cooperation uh, between the militaries of both countries. Um, that is certainly positive. Better talk than not talk and, and run the risk of having a problem. I don't think that it has removed the fundamental risk anyhow, at least not this fast. The second one was the promise by China to do something about uh, fentanyl. But, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we've been there before right. a few years ago and uh, and nothing really changed in the end. So I look at that as being more like, you know, leaders deciding to play nice publicly and and make promises that, uh, frankly speaking, on the fentanyl front, I'm not sure that they can, that they can or really want to live by. Hmm. Um, and uh, only time, only time will tell. You know, some some people in China that I've spoken with recently have clearly, squarely put the blame for the fentanyl crisis in the U.S. on the U.S. side and its inability to secure the border and so on. So who knows, you know, what will happen in reality. I think that on one hand, China usually, you know, has a pretty strong ability to control what's going on anywhere. On the other side, it's a vast country. Uh, and... Uh, and I'm not too sure that they can actually fully eradicate, uh, you know, the provision of at least some of the co chemical compounds and so on that uh, that eventually found their ways into making fentanyl and, and eventually getting it to the border into the U.S. market. Right. All right. We'll have to see how the tongue sticks, I imagine. If the tone keeps going positive, at least they'll make an effort. Um, okay, hey, uh, let's let's uh, move on next. Uh, we're going to look next at uh, China's recent approval of this $59 billion purchase of cloud computing firm VMware by U.S. chip giant Broadcom. Uh, this deal was first announced more than a year ago, and China was the last major country to approve it. Not surprisingly, the deal closed a short time later. Um, so China has notoriously dragged its feet on similar M&A in the past few years, which killed several deals. Most recently, Intel's plan to buy Tower Semiconductor. So taken in this context, do you see Beijing's approval of this Broadcom deal as potentially heralding a 
friendlier approach by China to Western M&A. And, you know, the, the timing, again, we, we're coming back to the Xi Biden summit, the timing doesn't or it seems a little more than coincidence coming right after the summit. Uh, you know, how do you see this whole thing? Um, the way I look at it right now, at least, it's pretty much a one-off. Call it for diplomatic reasons or whatever. Uh, probably because of the nature of uh, the business of VMware, probably less uh, problematic uh, than uh, what... Uh, uh, Intel was trying to do with our semiconductor. Um, look, nothing is really going to change fundamentally, I think, on the technology front uh, between the US and China, at least, I don't think, anytime soon. We are, uh, you know, practically entering an election year in the US. Um, it's not going to be a period of time where uh, the incumbent and and the challengers are going to be uh, want to be seen as being uh, soft on China. <laughs> the um, uh, issues around the, the technology transfer, especially with advanced chips and manufacturing equipment for those chips, is I think something that has been well researched and well debated and and decided on the U.S. side. Um, I don't think that uh, the fundamentals of that issue have changed, um, so I would not expect any major changes going forward. Okay, right, because that was my point. Is uh, I guess my my thing is even if relations improve, the U.S. is is still you know pretty made it pretty clear they're not going to allow China to import advanced microchips or, or any of the equipment or software they need to make them. You know, I guess the question is, does this, if China does end up, you know, vetoing lots of deals in the future, what's the semiconductor industry going to do? I mean, uh, will they, will just, just put a, you know, the kibosh on all future major chip M&A? Um. Hard to tell. I think every, you know, I think every uh, every case is different. Obviously, a lot of it hinges also on um, the activity of a target company uh, or an acquirer uh, in the China market, the scale of it, and so on, and whether there is a reasonable ground for preventing a deal, say on uh you know normal business commercial considerations such as antitrust and all of that now hmm. this being said uh politics even in the absence of any major commercial reason to be uh, to oppose something politics can still at any particular moment uh, come in and and uh, and change the uh, landscape so who knows um <laughs> It's uh, it's it's pretty much of a black box as far as I'm concerned because one side is is typically fairly unpredictable mm-hmm. um, in those kinds of situations and and doesn't have any problem using uh, you know something like this as retaliation for uh, other uh, problems where they believe they're being unfairly traded or where they basically want to play hardball get something else mm-hmm. i guess if you're a big chip company maybe the moral is uh look for be careful to time your uh, m&a when looks like china's maybe being a little more friendly uh than you know one of these flare-ups or something like that if, it, if there's the politics is really an issue 
Right, but it's difficult to predict also because typically those transactions do not get approved. I mean, even in the U.S. in a very short period of time, they typically play over somewhat longer period of time and lots of things can change right. uh, during, uh, you know, such a you know, period of several months. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I was being slightly humorous, but uh, yeah, it just looks like it's going to be tough. Okay, well, let's uh, wrap things up there. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. In our next program, we'll look at a new Chinese electric car IPO in New York, which could be the first major new listing in more than two years. We'll also look at a fun story about a new listing, this one in Hong Kong, for a company that's become China's leading bubble tea chain. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. Meantime, hope to see you all next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.